The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 14 this morning. The word of the Lord. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria and Ephraim and the son of Remaliah have devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken to pieces, so that it will no longer be a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 39, we'll be reading through verse 55 this morning. The word of our God. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, 
The baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Please keep your place here as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our morning sermon. Who could possibly believe her story? I mean, on the face of it, it's just patently ridiculous. Virgins do not give birth. Everybody knows that. If you read the Bible, please read the reality of life back into this passage. Imagine that there was a young woman, say 14, 15 years old, who lived down the street from you. One day you notice that she's starting to show, she's pregnant. And yet she tells you she's never had sexual relations with a man. Do you believe her? Oh, come on! We all know where babies come from. You don't believe her. I might be concerned about her mental health, perhaps concerned about who she's hanging out with as well. Do you see the terrible challenge that Mary was being confronted with? Six months after Elizabeth had conceived, the angel Gabriel came to her and announced the most astonishing news. He came to her and said this, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And not surprisingly, Mary found those words a bit unsettling and also quite puzzling. So the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Well, that tells her what, but it still doesn't explain how this could possibly take place. And so by way of explanation, Gabriel adds this, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The Lord God had personally sent his angel Gabriel to Mary to announce this news. Here's the remarkable thing. Mary believed it. 
Mary believed God and therefore took the Lord at his word. She says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then the angel departed. The Lord had declared the most astonishing thing to Mary, and Mary believed God. She took him at his word. But who could possibly believe Mary? You see the problem? We're never told exactly how old Mary is, but a good guess is that she was 14 or perhaps 15. She was a very young woman in need of wisdom and in need of godly mature saints who would love her rather than judge her. But where could she turn? Mary believed God, but who could possibly believe her? Well, Mary knew the answer to the question. Hadn't Gabriel told her, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. If anyone could possibly believe Mary's story, it would be Elizabeth, who who herself had conceived miraculously by the power of God in her old age. So Mary quickly journeys out to the hill country of Judea to be with Elizabeth. And as soon as Mary sees her godly relative, the Lord graciously gives Mary three wonderful confirmations of the blessings he has promised. First, Mary sees that Elizabeth is in fact pregnant with John the Baptist, having conceived well past the time of childbearing. The word of the Lord to Mary about Elizabeth was true, and that would have comforted her in knowing that God had spoken to her. Second, when Mary greets Elizabeth, John the Baptist is filled with the Holy Spirit and leaps for joy in her mother's, his mother's womb. Uh, one early church father puts this really beautifully. Not yet born, already John prophesies, and while still in the enclosure of his mother's womb, confesses the coming of Christ with moments of joy. Isn't that good? Not yet born, already John prophesies, and while still in the enclosure of his mother's womb, confesses the coming of Christ with moments of joy. Third, Elizabeth returns Mary's greeting with the most astonishing words. Now, we have to keep in mind, Mary's a teenage girl. Now, in this church, because you young people are very polite and respectful, and you honor those who are older than you, you're used to the fact that you tend to greet those of us who are older with kindness and respect and a degree of honor. We should realize this was a much stronger issue in the ancient Near East. That There was a great degree of deference that young people showed the old. And here's Mary, 14, 15 years old, coming and greeting her very, very esteemed uh, relative, Elizabeth, who's in her old age. And so you expect Mary to be deferential to Elizabeth, which she is. What you don't expect is Elizabeth to be deferential to Mary. But actually what Elizabeth is being deferential to is not Mary, 
but the child that is conceived in Mary's womb. Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, exclaims, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. What comfort Mary must have received from being welcomed by Elizabeth like that. Her highly esteemed and godly uh, relative Elizabeth was referring to the son in Mary's womb as her Lord. You know, we sometimes sing that Jesus was born a king. We should remember that Jesus was conceived a king because the Son of God has been king from everlasting to everlasting. Well, that was simply astonishing that Elizabeth would greet Mary like this. Uh, Given how quickly Mary traveled to Elizabeth, it would have been obvious uh, that she wasn't showing yet. In fact, we know that she's less than 12 weeks pregnant at this point, if you put the, the time together. So the only reason why Elizabeth knows that Mary's pregnant is because the Holy Spirit is revealing that to her as well. What an encouraging and comforting sign this would have been to Mary. So instead of Mary having to explain all the details of what Gabriel had declared, wondering how Elizabeth would react, Mary was able to explain those details knowing that Elizabeth would believe every single word. Then Mary herself breaks out into song. It is worth pausing for a moment to consider why songs. You know, as you read through Luke, it's a beautiful thing to do at Christmas time because that's where you get more of the stories. But you read through the first couple chapters of Matthew and the first couple chapters of Luke, as you celebrate Christmas, it's a great blessing. And what we see in Luke is there are four songs almost in a row. We have Mary's Magnificat. We have Zechariah's song about the birth of John the Baptist. We have the song of the angels. And then we have the song of Simeon. So we should ask ourselves, why songs? They don't actually move the plot line along. Well, one of the reasons why we have songs in Scripture is God uses songs, gives songs to us, to mark mark out critical events in redemptive history. Uh, He does that, for example, with um, uh, the Exodus. We get the song of Moses, and the people sing, right? They're taught to sing. We have to remember, people didn't have Bibles. Uh, Some people couldn't even read. And so what happened is, is people could memorize these songs about the most central events in redemptive history, and they could carry them around with them throughout the day and praise God using them. Now, I've used this illustration before. I've used it a couple times before, so maybe one of you is eventually going to take me up on it. But I think this morning I can use this illustration again without any danger that I need to break out my credit card about how poetry, particularly poetry we sing, helps us to memorize words, to fix them very clearly in our memory. Uh, Luther, who I have great respect for, says that the most important verses in the entire Bible, okay, Luther was a little bit prone to hyperbole, but but I think in this, this case he's probably right, the most important verses in the entire Bible are Romans chapter 3, right, verses 21 through 26. 
Romans 3, 21 to 26. Um, these verses movingly unfold how a holy God can be both just and the justifier of those who trust in Jesus Christ. You do well to study them. But I'd buy a steak dinner for anyone here who could recite it from memory to me when we get out of here. Because none of you is going to be able to do that. This is a little short passage. Among the most important verses in the entire Bible. I would not make that offer with Psalm 23. Because I'd be buying 100 steak dinners. I mean, basically, all of you can recite Psalm 23 from memory. Because it's poetry. And, And so the Lord is taking poetry here, these songs... Precisely so the people of God can memorize them and sing them and carry them with us to mark out the great events in redemptive history. And this event is more important than the exodus out of Egypt. It marks out God's exodus of bringing us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. So first, songs help fix words and ideas deep in our memory. But second, these songs are not merely for our instruction. They are for our instruction, but they're not only for our instruction. They are presented in such a way that they invite us to join in the singing, right? to join in the praise of God for doing this. The Magnificat is not given for us to dissect, or worse, to see what moral lessons we could draw out of it so that we could learn to be more like Mary. Right? That's not what's going on here. In fact, the song isn't about Mary. Mary's the one singing. But the song is about Almighty God. Almighty God who took to himself a true human nature and was born of the Virgin Mary for your salvation. See, Mary wants us to look where she is looking and to taste something of the feast of grace that she is savoring. Mary wants us to join her in singing and not merely to learn from her how to sing, but to find our hearts erupting with joy over the very same object of her song. See, Mary is not the focus of Mary's song. The God who saves by Jesus Christ is the object of her song. The song is therefore structured in two parts. In verses 46 to 49... Mary sings about how overwhelmed she is by the Lord's greatness and grace. Then in verses 50 through 55, she tells all of God's people that the Lord is equally gracious to all of you. Verses 46 through 47. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. See, Mary's song is about making much of God. But what does it mean to magnify the Lord? You know, we use that term magnify in two very different ways. A a microscope takes something that's really small, and it makes it look big. That's not what Mary's doing here. right? She's not taking a small God and making him look big. But we also use the term magnify to talk about things that are enormous, but they appear small to us because we're so far away from them. That's what Mary's getting at. The infinitely great God, as she draws close to him, is enormous beyond belief. And she's celebrating the grandeur of God. She's publicly proclaiming how great the Lord is. 
That's what it means to magnify the Lord. Look closely with me at the two clauses in these verses to see how they fit together. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. There is a direct connection between being overwhelmed by the grandeur and majesty of God and true joy. Simply put, the bigger your God, the greater your joy. What is the basis for Mary's joy? Look at verses 48 and 49 with me. For he has looked on the humblest state of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. So Mary mentions four reasons why she's exulting with joy, rejoicing in her God. Let's take them in order. First, the Lord has looked upon her humble estate. Now, if you were someone like Warren Buffett, who's one of the richest people in the world, you would not be particularly surprised that the President of the United States pays attention to you. But what if instead of the Bill Gateses and the Warren Buffetts of the world, the President of the United States were to pay particular attention to Isabel? Right? Or Abby? Or any of the young women in our church? To, to act on your behalf and to say, I want you to have an important role in my administration. That, that's such an extraordinary leap for us that we can scarcely imagine what that would be like. You know what Mary's saying? That's nothing. Almighty God, who spoke the universe into existence, looked upon me with favor and has acted on my behalf so that from now on, all generations, in the words of Elizabeth, her godly relative, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Second, Mary says, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Now, please notice that Mary does not say, from now on, all generations will call me great. She says, blessed. She's the object of God's blessing. Mary does not imagine herself as some sort of super saint or a really good catch for Almighty God. That is not what Mary is saying. Mary is not the source of the blessing, but the object of God's unmerited favor. As the Apostle Paul would later write, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Do you understand what Paul is saying? He's saying the Lord chose a really bad sinner so that other really bad sinners could look at me and think, I'm not beyond hope. If Paul wasn't beyond hope, neither am I. And Mary's doing a very similar thing. Now, Mary's not talking about sin. Uh, by all accounts, she seems to be a very godly young woman. But she is focusing on her insignificance in the same way. 
Mary is saying, all generations will call me blessed, and all the insignificant people of the world will take courage, saying, if the Lord could so richly bless someone as insignificant as this teenage girl, surely he can bless and use someone as insignificant as me too. Third, Mary says, For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Uh, That hardly needs comment. The Lord God omnipotent chose a teenage girl who was utterly insignificant in the eyes of the movers and shakers of this world to be the mother of the Messiah, the mother of the Son of God. But I'd like to give you a point of encouragement on applying this truth to your own lives. Let me speak particularly to you young people, but you older people listen in too. This applies to everyone here. Uh, I've discovered that many younger people who are Christians imagine that when you grow up, when you're older, when you've become successful, when, when you have a claim where the world looks at you and says, you are impressive. You know, you're the CEO of a company, a great scientist, the lead opera singer then you're going to leverage that strength for the glory of God. But do you understand that God is saying, I use insignificant people. I use people that the world looks on and thinks are nothing. But they will realize that it's all of me. Now, you young people are going to have to get older before Google's going to hire you for an important computer programming position, or before you become a surgeon, or before you become a business leader or a lawyer or whatever it happens to be. You have to work hard and get a good education, and then the world will give you those jobs. But you can glorify God right now. Right now. See, Daniel was a young man, and his friends were young men when they were brought over into Babylon, and they stood for the Lord, right, against the power of the empire to the glory of God. And Mary's just a teenage girl. We see that all throughout Scripture. And in fact, isn't that what the Holy Spirit tells us in 1 Corinthians? Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let him who boasts, boast. In the Lord. Isn't that precisely what Mary is doing? Now, Mary's not drawing attention to her own humility. She's drawing attention to her humble estate. But in the very fact of doing that, she is displaying a type of godly humility. She's acknowledging that I am not the reason why this is happening. God is. I've bowed the knee before my creator, my creator and said, not my will, but thy will be done. That is the perfect sign of a godly humility. Fourth and finally, Mary declares, and holy is his name. See, the Lord who is blessing Mary is not a cosmic Santa Claus 
or a senile grandfather figure who just says, I hope everyone has a really nice day. As we're going to see later on in the Magnificat, in just a moment, the good news for God's people does not bring blessing to everybody. Rather, it brings judgment on those who stand stiff-necked against God's grace. His name is holy. So Mary is exalting God with every fiber of her being, and her joy is contagious. And we all want to share with her in this experience of the Lord. And then Mary turns to us and says, this blessing isn't just for me. It's for all the people of God. This blessing is for you. The God who is so gracious to act like this in my life is the God of grace who is sending his son for you. Look at verse 50 with me. And his mercy is for those who fear him. Fear here means those who trust in him, who take him at his word, just like Mary did. And it's for all of you who do that. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now, as I said, Mary naturally spoke of her own humble estate rather than her own humility. Nevertheless, her words have been those of someone who was genuinely meek. As the Lord said to the prophet Jeremiah, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, let the one who is wise boast in this, that he knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Isn't that precisely what Mary's been doing? And now we are being invited to join her in her song. So Mary makes clear that the coming of the Messiah is only good news for those who love his appearing. That the Lord resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Indeed, while the Lord's mighty acts of deliverance are astonishingly good news for his people, they are the worst possible news for his enemies and those who seek to exalt themselves. Verse 51 and following. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now, because Mary is talking in the past tense, it's a little bit misleading. You can ask Nathan about that later, about how translations work. But because he's talking in the past tense, commentators tend to look back They look at all the times God's done that in the past, whether it's in Egypt or Babylon or whatever, where he scatters the proud and brings them low. But in light of what Mary is saying, ought we not to connect this to her own confession that the Messiah is being born in her womb? But the focus is on what God is doing now at that point in history. I mean, I do think undoubtedly Mary was considering what God was doing in her life in light of his great acts of deliverance in the past. You ought to do that too, right? Think about the Exodus. Think about the return from Babylon. 
Right? But Mary was focusing, I believe, on the present, the great act. She's specifically celebrating the incarnation. And ought we not to hear the message of God scattering the proud, but giving grace to the humble as being directly related to the Son of God that she was carrying in her womb? As Phil Riken puts it, the great reversal had already begun. The choice of Mary proved it. God was lifting up the humble. He would soon humble the proud. And yet, and yet, Mary is not the humblest person in the story. Jesus is. The Son of God is the focus of this story. The Son of God is the humblest person in this story. As one of my favorite Christmas hymns puts it, Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake becamest poor. Thrones for a manger did surrender. Sapphire paved courts for stable floor. Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake, became as poor. Or as Jesus himself would tell us, Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. See, the incarnation is not just a veiling of the glory of God. It is that. It's right to sing, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. It is a veiling of the glory in one sense. But it's also a revelation of the character of God. That our God in his very nature is gentle. He is meek. And Jesus shows you what that looks like. Yet this is not the end of the story either for Jesus or for us. The great reversal that Mary sings about applies both to Jesus and to all of you who love his appearing. As the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or hung on to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Mary's song is pointing forward to these truths, even as she is calling us to join in singing with her. Let him who boasts... Boast in the Lord. That, after all, is what Mary has done. And if we join this chorus 
and magnify the Lord with every fiber of our being, we will discover what Mary discovered 2,000 years ago. The bigger your God, the greater your joy. So let us make much of God this Christmas season. Amen.